like instead that's, of detecting brain waves, we're gonna what detect full of No, no, I'm not. No, no. He's saying use the brain wave things as pasties. Is De- what he's saying. Detect because apparently pasties didn't exist okay. back then. Okay, so I just want I just want I just want to point this out. Helen said detect nipple erections. I just want to I just want to make sure that's out there in the world. Because <laughs> I've never what would you call I have it? never heard that. <laughs> From Rosemary's Baby and Reagan McNeil to Jason, Freddie, and Chucky to Samara, Jigsaw, and Pennywise, we can't get enough. If it's blood-curdling, spine-tingling, breath-quickening, or soul-stealing, we are ready to watch it. Welcome to Hilltop Horror Movie Reviews. I'm your host, Ray Richards. With me tonight are my two co-hosts, Anne Conley. Hey, guys. And Helen Stewart. Hello. All right, tonight we're going to review Flatliners, a 1990 American science fiction psychological horror film directed by Joel Schumacher, produced by Michael Douglas and Rick Bieber, and written by Peter Filardi. It stars Kiefer Sutherland, Julia Roberts, William Baldwin, Oliver Platt, and Kevin Bacon. The film is about five medical students who attempt to find out what lies beyond death by conducting clandestine experiments that produce near-death experiences. The film was shot on the campus of Loyola University, Chicago, between October 1989 and January 1990, and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Sound Editing. The film was theatrically released on August 10th, 1990 by Columbia Pictures. It grossed $61 million at the box office. All right, so usually when we get started, we talk about what our expectations were going into uh, watching the movie. So, Anne, what were your expectations? So, shockingly, I had seen this movie before. I mean, obviously, it's a 1990s horror, so for, you know, sort of our age and our timeline, really classic. Also, I kind of love Joel Schumacher, I'm not gonna lie. Like, between Batman and Robin and Batman Forever and, like, so kind of, like, horrible but wonderful at the same time just seemed probably my previous review of, like, Nightmare on Elm Street, like, this combination of, like, kitschy and horrible to make something that's... Just hilariously awesome at the end of the day. So I vaguely remembered this. I couldn't remember, though, if I had really liked this or not. It didn't leave a big lasting impression. So I was like, all right, well, yeah, Joel Schumacher, let's let's do it. I've never seen this movie before, so I didn't really know what to expect going into it. But I do love Kiefer Sutherland, although I feel like I now realize I only like him as the 24 actor. and julia roberts of course is gorgeous and a great actress so i was excited to watch it okay well like Anne, i have seen this movie before and like Anne, it did not leave much of an impression on me so knowing that joel schumacher directed it i actually had a pretty negative thought going into the review unlike Anne, who likes the both the batman movies from the 90s that he directed i think they are horrible horrible things so which batman was this it's which ba- actor batman, batman forever and batman, batman robin and robin with the nipple suits with george clooney <laughs> okay okay that's i need well, the actors jo- it was george yeah, and clooney and it was val kilmer before nipple that yeah. that wasn't his fault let's be clear the casting was not up to him no i i think the whole thing was up to him i think that was all joel schumacher but but the point is whatever they're still <laughs> awesome yep so the point is i had low expectations going in i did like lost boys though which he made which is closer in time to this movie than the batman movies are and i will say that i might have to reevaluate my thought behind joel schumacher now after this movie well with that why don't you roll the trailer Anne? oh all right let's do it and trailer time action Today's a good day to die. Flatline. 30 seconds to go. 
Can you recall any specific emotion or sensation? No, but there is something out there. We're running out of time. 300, clear. Nothing. Your heart going down. Clear. Nothing. I can't hear anything. Come on, Nelson. Freeze. We lost him. I'm going next. Two minutes. Ten. Was there anything negative about your experience? This is too weird. We've experienced death. Now, somehow, we brought our sins back physically. They're past. That is not a hallucination, and it is not possible. Oh, my God. You withheld information. That's the same as lying. You wouldn't have done it. At least we would have had a choice. They're not real. <laughs> hey, come on. They're your sins. Live with them. I do. No! Nelson, please! I thought I paid my dues! Thank you for the nightmare. No! Come on, Joe! Starting CPR. One one thousand. Two one thousand. Get it! Flatliners. Some lines shouldn't be crossed. Nelson Wright, medical student, walks onto a beach one day and proclaims, Today is a good day to die. He later convinces four of his medical student classmates, Joe Hurley, David Labratio, Randy Steckel, and Rachel Manis, to help him discover what lies beyond death. Nelson flatlines for one minute before his classmates resuscitate him. While dead, he experiences a sort of afterlife. He sees a vision of a boy he bullied as a child, Billy Mahoney. He merely tells his friends that he cannot describe what he saw, but something is there. The others follow Nelson's daring feet. This movie immediately is ridiculous to me. They have this flying in, swooping shot and zoom up on Kiefer Sutherland standing on the beach in like his trench coat, you know, and he's like, it's a, today's a good day to die. And I'm like, first of all, I was like, is this a sequel to Lost Boys? Because it immediately looked like Lost Boys to me. If you've seen Lost Boys, it's all on the beach there, right? And then he go, then you next see him, and he's in front of this museum-looking building with all these, like, construction, I don't know, like, police barricades or something. I'm like, immediately, like, what is going on with this movie? It is crazy. With, like, the weird steampunk giant lights that he's standing next to. Yeah. It's, yeah, super weird setting. And then we're down in the bowels of the hospital, which immediately I'm like, ooh, now we're putting neon in hospitals. Apparently, who knew? Well, I thought it was a catacomb. I didn't even know what it was at first. It was so dark and there's this arched, you know, hallway. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, what is going on? And then finally they go into a room that's obviously like an operating room. room. You're like, okay, we're in the hospital. Well, they have all the statues of Mary and everybody else around. But then, yeah, these like arches of neon. And right there, you're like, okay, that's Joel Schumacher. Like 100%. Oh, yeah. yeah. This, This movie, if this movie is good at anything, it's good at this sort of crazy atmospheric and architectural whatever, you know, um, Schumacher's putting together. It's amazing looking. Yeah, and I like that. Like, Joel Schumacher studied at Parsons School of Design, originally in fashion, and you can just tell that, like, he likes that stuff. You know, it's interesting. It has a look. It has a vibe, whether you like it or not. Well, I mean, even Nelson's apartment, which is ridiculously huge. Oh, that thing is crazy. Oh, and more neon. Well, did you notice? (laughs) Did you notice the lights are at the base of the walls? Yeah, yeah. The baseboards are lifted. Crazy. I don't even know how they. Yeah, home renovation. Yeah, I guess. I mean, everything's really good. I mean, everything looks really atmospheric in this movie. In fact, the three other movies that this sort of evoked to me was um, Lost Boys, like I said, also Dark City, which kind of had this sort of city or place out of time, and and um, The Crow. And actually, there's a fourth one, which is seven, because all of those and just like, I don't know where this is supposed to take place exactly, but it felt like a city and a time that was 
displaced sort of from reality, right? It didn't feel real exactly. So I will be perfectly honest with everybody that when I first started watching this, I thought we were in like Italy. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was wondering okay. why everyone spoke English. <laughs> it was weird with all the statues and everything. So yeah, and right? then they were showing all of like, it's like, I guess the Latin part. So you could see that they were doing this clear religious versus science type battle with mm-hmm. what was going on with the mm-hmm. movie. And I got that. But then I thought with the being in the church type hospital that we were in like some foreign country because it was it was dark and creepy. Yeah, it was weird. I would not have pictured that as Chicago. Sure, yeah. I'm not sure it was supposed to be Chicago or, in the movie, though. Right. I'm yeah, not that's sure. True. Yeah, I agree. I, immediately, I was kind of like, oh, like a post-apocalyptic, again, like a Batman-like Gotham type of well, scenario. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like, it's it's its own city outside. Kind of like in Seven, they never tell you what right. the name of the city is. Right, it's just this there. thing. Yeah, which is, which is fine. Because it's better at sort of being displaced and not really attached to anything it adds to the weirdness and the mystique of the movie and uh helen i love that you called out the religion versus the science i also felt like there was this battle between like the gothic and the renaissance so similarly they just had interesting juxtapositions throughout the movie yeah if i knew anything about architecture i could speak to that but i don't and but i did get the whole gothic (laughs) thing (laughs) thanks for that insight ray yeah you know (laughs) just don't look to me to explain what what everything looks like in the movie Um, so one thing before we move on, I was thinking, you know, with Ray and his head shaking, I feel like we should start counting how many head shakes we get in a podcast. Why? What am I shaking so my head about? Up or down? Or like he up does the, sideways. He does the. Oh God, guys. Yeah. Oh God. No. Well, that, well, that was specifically, I think, <laughs> Joel Schumacher and Anne's whole thing about whole liking podcast. the Batman. It's like, nah, <laughs> yeah. I just can't. My I can't pen would run out of girls, guys. Shaking the head. I can't manage that. My pen would run out of ink. I feel like we should call them the Ray shakes. How many Ray shakes do we get for a podcast? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> For our performance. Yeah. Yikes. I don't know. All right. So should we actually talk about the movie? Or where are we at? <laughs> yeah. So you have Nelson, right? And he's like the main guy. He wants to figure out what happens after death. And while he's sort of, I think, trying to figure out where to do this, you have his friend David Labratio, who's Kevin Bacon, plays uh, this character. And he goes to try to do this surgery, I guess, on somebody who comes into the hospital. And he gets thrown out of the hospital or suspended or, or whatever. And they're med students, right? Right. Then he feels like he needs to repel out a second story window. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, he's repelling out of, his, <laughs> out of his dorm, which also has this huge graffiti thing i mean everything about this movie right but yeah he's repelling i literally started keeping a list of wtf moments because just exactly to that point random shit (laughs) i'm sorry for the cursing but just be throughout this movie why are you repelling out a second story window oh you're such a rebel david it's almost like they didn't have permission to film inside that building and (laughs) and how about and, just coming out the front door? That's too complicated. Yeah, and well, he probably was like, look at this wall. We could just rappel out the window and look how cool it looks in it, you know? Yeah, like in almost like a kid-like fashion, you can almost see this schizophrenia behind the scenes. And in some ways, you're watching this with like a 12-year-old 1990s eyes and going, man, that's so cool. But, you know, now like 20, you know, 25, 30 years later, you're, you're going, um... What the hell is I st- going on? I still on? thought it was cool. I still thought, what the hell? But I did think it was cool. <laughs> with, the, with the repelling? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's different. You don't need to see it, right? But the funny thing is, is how Nelson calls him out. He's like, you can go rock climbing. What did he say? You know what I mean? He says that to him, basically, referencing the fact that he that he repelled out of the window. 
So at least it wasn't it didn't go unsaid. But then he goes to this vehicle, which he's like, "What the hell is the truck that? that he has? He has like a tarp, yeah. a blue tarp, partially over a piece of it. It's like, what is it? It's sort of like an army truck. Yeah, Jeep, but that's I, why I thought we were in Italy because yeah. for some reason I thought he had like an old World War II vehicle or something. Oh, that's what yeah. I actually had written down was World War II renovated hospital. <laughs> I actually, that's exactly what I thought it was. I thought it was, uh, like we said, sort of post-apocalyptic or like war era. And same idea where they had sort of taken over a church and had renovated it into a hospital. That was sort of my initial impression because exactly nothing seemed like it fit where it was supposed to go type of thing, including them being in that weird building and weird dorm. It wasn't really a dorm and nobody returned to the buildings they were originally in. I don't know. it It was weird. Yeah. They don't really explain how he apparently lives in a dorm. But Nelson lives in like a full, huge apartment with nobody else. And no furniture. And so does she. She lives in like. She lives in like a, yeah. In an apartment. Much more homey. But still. Like is David Labratio the only poor guy that has to live in in a dorm? In fact, he is the only poor guy who has to live in a dorm because you see Randy Steckel's place. He's sitting here, you know, trying to dictate his his book to. Oh, right. Right. And and then you see see Joe Hurley's place because he's the one having sex with all the women. Yeah. Like well, literally, he definitely needed a bed for that. Yeah. I mean, literally, David Liberace is the only dude who lives in a dorm. Huh. And he was engaged, so you're kind of curious about that whole scenario. The Joe? Baldwin guy. Billy. Billy yeah. Baldwin. Billy Baldwin. Billy, Billy Baldwin. Not yes. Kevin Bacon. No. no. I, mean, I mean, nobody's going to get engaged to that guy with that hair. I'm sorry. Which that one? didn't bother you? Who? Kevin Bacon's hair? <laughs> well, it's Kevin Bacon. I mean, but that's, his hair. that's his hair. It's awful. Yeah, I mean, it's just like late 80s. I mean, I at really don't like it, Kevin Bacon, but... At least it wasn't a mullet. At least I it was I all one prefer, length. It looked like... He, it was, I don't know. It was borderline mullet. It was just growing <laughs> out of the mullet phase. Yes. So, so to me, it was it was right in line with um, Tremors. So right, that's right in that time period, 1990, It's basically the, the same, same hair. Thing? Yeah. Oh. It, it didn't grossly bother me. Julia Roberts' hair, although I thought was fabulous, bothered me on principle because you could see them redoing her hair like between takes and stuff like that. And you're just like, that's not how curly hair works, but you're yeah. beautiful anyways. I don't care. That's fine. Yeah. She was very pretty woman-esque. Oh, yeah. Like it was like I, I went from pretty woman movie to right here. Yeah. They really amped up the volume on the hair. But yeah. I mean, but gorgeous. Obviously, she's gorgeous. Yeah. She is very gorgeous. What? Now we're getting no, another, we got another Ray Shake. Ray Shake. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do not. Oh, I'm doing a song. I, I like it. I do not agree. Uh, you don't think Ju- she was beautiful I do in not this, think in Julie, general? I do not think Julia Roberts is attractive. Oh, no. I've never thought Julia Roberts was oh, attractive. Oh, my God. We're going to get so I, much hate mail. I will not say the word horse face, but <gasps> that's no. just. Oh, Who's the girl, who's the girl who I'm actually has a horse face? Sex in the City. Come on. No, don't. No, that's not right. Sarah Jessica Parker. She, like, people say she has a horse face. That's so mean. I don't have a problem well, with her. But well, people say that. I don't right? think I don't think she's attractive either. So Okay, so back to the actual movie. Let's talk about the flat lining that actually happened here with Kiefer. You know, they get him in there, they cool down the body temperature. Also, I thought that blanket was super cool. Again, sort of like more neon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I did think it was cool. So they chill him out. They chill him down to like 86 degree body temperature. So the one thing that was kind of annoying me was is it uh Billy Baldwin is Joel or Joe? Joe. Joe. Our boy Joe. Um, so he's supposed to be um, recording like via the video camera, the camcorder with this whole thing. So he's, you know, the camcorder is up, it's down, it's on, it's off. And I was like, if you're trying to make any sort of scientific, you know, documentary or anything, any type of evidence gathering um, documentation, this is clearly not it. 
But then he looks in the camera and it's black and white. And you're like, why is the camera, the camcorder, black and white? I mean, this is 1990. They've got color TV. You know, <laughs> like, you're like, this is kind of weird. And then what I realized is something I thought this movie did incredibly well was, again, just sort of like we were saying with the juxtaposition, was with the lighting effects. Lots of really interesting and unique lighting effects, all the way to fast forward to the end with Julia Roberts. And every time she went into her dream state mode with her dad, that everything became very red. So they used specific lighting throughout this. And what I realized was they made that camera black and white. So you could very specifically flash back and back and forth between the current um, you know, medical student flatlining state and Kiefer Sutherland's post-death experience. So his post-death experience was in this beautiful yellow flower field and ultraviolet, like just super vibrant, right? Vivid. Very vivid, yeah. Like almost to the point where you're like, I feel like I'm in a calendar. And then it would pull it back to the black and white shot through the camcorder with the medical students. So I was like, oh, like I get it. Like, so then you're flipping between these two worlds and just to sort of exacerbate this, you know, post-death experience being even more vivid, right? More in like this true ultra color, you know, using the camcorder as sort of a mechanism. So I actually thought that was actually really cool. This whole thing about David Labratio, Kevin Bacon's character, they need him there because he can bring somebody back. I get it that he's a good surgeon potentially, right? That that matters. There's a skill for surgery. But is CPR a skill that, like, does he have the rhythm that just gets the heart going or something? Because it seems like he's the only dude who can do the CPR right to get people back. Like, they need him. And I'm just like, you're not doing anything special. It's CPR. You're bagging the person to do the air. And then you give them, you know, drugs. Maybe some epi, yeah. Whatever. I mean, we're not doctors. We don't know. I mean, I thought the CPR was a little ridiculous. But the way that I took it was, like, David Labratio, he has good judgment, and that's why they wanted them him there and also that he would do what was right and what was necessary to bring them back. So just the idea that, okay, you know, if they need CPR, they're getting CPR. If they need more drugs, they're getting more drugs. I, I think Rachel, you know, brings back somebody else later on with upping the um, – Voltage? Yes, yes. So I didn't keep track. I didn't keep like a scorecard of, you know, who sort of revived whom. Well, obviously, Liberatio didn't revive himself, so right. at least one time, somebody was revived without him. Yeah, I just got the impression that he was sort of, you know, a really gifted medical student, so they just really wanted him there in general for his judgment and kind of as like one of their all-star players. Yeah, I mean, I got that they wanted him there because he was a good doctor or, you know, an all-star, but it's just, they referenced multiple times like... Can, you know, you have to bring them back, or can you? You're the one that can bring them back, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah, know. I, I don't know. Too. I just thought it was interesting. I was like, where, where's the skill there? He's but, got the magic touch. Yeah, he's got the rhythm. <laughs> it did seem like they had said like the each person there had some sort of skill that they wanted. I liked that. Except, I thought but that I was didn't think they played enough on Except it. Except for Oliver Platt, he didn't right. really have a skill. Yeah. Yeah, not not much. He had the little handheld tape recorder. He was yeah. whiny. Yeah, <laughs> he was whiny. I still liked him. <laughs> yeah. No. He was, I disagree. He was good enough. He disagreed. <laughs> I, like, I feel like he was supposed to be comic relief, and I didn't pick that. Like I didn't get that. Like I didn't think he was comic enough. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. super funny. Yeah. So, so the one thing I did like is that in the beginning here, Nelson Wright seems like a fairly decent guy. Kiefer Sutherland ha can play sort of the kind of crazy bad guy, the same 
kind of Jack Nicholson-esque, right? He starts getting that voice going and getting his face going and, and yeah, he bad. didn't seem neurotic at but, all but, wanting to kill himself. No, no. I mean, you have that piece where he wants to, he wants to go through this experiment, but like, he's not being like an ass to all the people. All the all the other doctors, he knew right? He's a bit of a bully. Yeah, no, no, he you was, need to be there on time. Well, he was trying yeah. to get him in there, but nowhere near what he was doing later on. You need to be punctual. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, I I agree. Sorry, Ray, focus. But where's our Ray Shay? I know he's trying to like limit our Ray Shay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just give us a moment. Yeah, I mean, generally he did a good job rallying the troops, but, you know, I think he also needed them. So he was willing to, like, kind of kiss their asses a little bit to get them there. But, yeah, I mean, you begin to see him unravel throughout the movie, so that was good. Yeah, I got a little confused with, like, where they were having this set up because they look like they're doing art restoration there. And then they bring all this equipment in. And then they obviously are not taking the equipment away, but they're storing it someplace so that people don't know that they're in there. But they keep bringing it back and forth. I'm like, how how'd that work? Logistics do not exist in a Joel Schumacher universe. I see. Yeah, it was all about the cool <laughs> aesthetics. I thought this is a cool place to do this. With like the ha- half face coming out of the floor. And yes, again, all the weird statues. Yeah. And yeah, again, like that gothic renaissance. It was just very weird. It was weird, though, that they did show that there were like three or four people doing work in the building. Right. And then... Those pe- the doctors are in the building. Like you would think they would have shown it to be abandoned or something, so you didn't think. Well, why wouldn't they just find them? Right. Considering yeah. they're yelling or and they're screaming yeah. and you know shocking, shocking each other, and yeah, it's like crazy. Pounding on chests. Joe flatlines next, and he experiences an erotic afterlife sequence. He agrees with Nelson's claim that something indeed exists. David is third to flatline, and he sees a vision of a girl, Winnie Hicks, whom he bullied in grade school. The three men start to experience hallucinations related to their afterlife visions. Nelson gets physically beat up by Billy Mahoney twice. Joe, engaged to be married, is haunted by his home videos of his sexual dalliances with other women. David finds Winnie Hicks on a train, and she verbally taunts him the way he taunted her. So the the one thing that we didn't get to in the last part was after Nelson has his uh, near-death experience when he's in the back of Labratio's truck and they all go into the convenience store uh, to buy food and he's sitting out there and then all of a sudden as you said Anne, like all the neon lights come up and all the neon graffiti starts to glow the yeah. black and then, lights yeah that was pretty cool yeah and then yeah. all his dog is like crawling on the yeah. ground and all that I thought that was really cool how they did that and I thought it was cooler when they shifted back because I really noticed it when they shifted back yeah I agree so Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, I thought it was all cool. I thought the graffiti was super cool, like with the creepy uh, demonic type of mm-hmm. faces they had on the wall, especially those two like glaring eyeballs sort of like over the dumpster, like sort of just positioned just right. Yeah, I mean, that scene was a little weird because it's like, all right, let's just jump in this giant bus and drive down to Chinatown. Like, I thought that was weird. This guy's just been revived and let's let's go get something to eat and leave this kid in the car. Okay. <laughs> but the, but obviously the black light scene could happen, so that was awesome. Uh <laughs> But to jump into um, our boy Joe's uh, flatline experience. So this was, I thought, interesting because it was a little bit on that take of your entire life flashes before your eyes. But apparently Joe's entire life was boobs. Yes. Yeah. It was. Well, yeah, it was all some sort of mommy breastfeeding thing. And then. Is what I got out of it. Because it was a really big boob. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Totally from birth and the breastfeeding all the way to weirdly ogling, you know, 14-year-old chess, which seemed mildly inappropriate, you know, all the way through like adult 
boobs obsession, right? Yeah, I missed the 14-year-old chest ondling, I think. But not sure how you could have missed that. I don't... I don't, I don't have my notes, but <laughs> but I but I get what you're saying. As he moves into adolescence, like it's a whole it's yeah. a whole thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes. like a, I thought that his afterlife issues were kind of weak because he already had the videos. Like he didn't really need to. I don't know. I just thought it could have been a little bit better for him. Like you have the bullying of the um, Billy, not Madison, <laughs> Billy Mahoney. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Billy um, Madison could have used some more bullying. Yeah, that's right. Um, then that was really sad. And then the Winnie Hicks was super, super sad. Like I, I felt really bad for her. But then like, okay, so he, he's engaged and he has a lot of sex. Clearly, he's got some issues. Yeah, yeah, I thought the same thing because a lot of these seem like very serious life issues or life traumatizations. And you're like, this guy's just going out and having a lot of sex and cheating on his girlfriend. Like, I don't feel bad for him. But I, but I think that the show is ambivalent on whether or not it is an actual supernatural thing or if it's just really just a psychological um, sort of an unrepression of this guilt that they feel, right? You know, obviously, I think Kiefer Sutherland's character, Nelson, feels, you know, some sort of guilt for killing Billy Mahoney. And Kevin Bacon's character feels guilt for making fun of this girl when he was in school. And I think that, you know, Joe feels guilt for doing all of this, you know, um, having all these affairs uh, when he's in, when he's engaged. I totally agree. I mean, cat out of the bag, you know, it's not really afterlife. It's like their own personified guilt. So they brought it full circle. It definitely made sense. And actually, I thought sort of how the whole storyline wound up with, you know, again, being haunted through the video and through this, in the screens in various locations, like that was cool how they did that. And then, you know, the fiance comes back and discovers the tapes and she's so horrified and we'll, we'll talk to her when we get there. But, you know, that scene's really good. So it made sense. But, you know, I think to Helen's point, it just wasn't as like visceral as like a life and death or a child bullying situation or, you know, well, a parental death or something like and, that. And also didn't, not to get too too far ahead to the end of it, but he also didn't do anything to alleviate it. I mean, right. that, that, that was taken out of his hands, which I, I wish they would have maybe set something up so that he made it so that she would find out. Right. And I think that's my problem. You know what I mean? He didn't own it like he, the other yeah, two Yeah, he did. didn't own it like the or other people the did. Or make the change to make it go away. Yeah, he, like, he just... She ba- happened to find it, yeah. Exactly. Like, he could have not went through this experience, and she still would have showed up and still would have seen them, and he still would be in the same situation. Right. Well, really, he would be uh, feeling more guilty about it. So, I mean, do we ever see conclusively that he's not haunted anymore? That's true. You just because assume... Really, I mean, you've had an afterlife experience... The idea that, you know, your brain chemistry has been altered into this state, you know, and now that fiance just dumped you for having done exactly what you were already guilty about. I mean, that you, pff, talk about downward, downward spiral from there. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, my assumption would be he doesn't have to feel guilty anymore because she's he's she, he and she are no longer in a relationship. So he's no longer sort of lying. But I feel like he should feel guilty because he has all these women that he taped without their knowledge. And yeah. that was what I thought it was about. Let's be clear, Ray, would you feel guilty in that situation? I wouldn't tape somebody without their consent. Okay. Well, that's very nice. That was the the correct answer. Check that box. (laughs) If you theoretically were in his position where you had taped this and then your fiance came back and discovered you and dumped you after having slept with all these women and taping them without their permission, would you have continued to feel guilty past that? Well, I mean, I guess I wouldn't have repressed guilt, right? 
I mean, it's not to say that Nelson doesn't also still feel guilty for causing Billy Mahoney's death, but he's accepted that guilt and accepted his part in it. And maybe um, Joe has accepted that what he was doing was wrong. I don't know. I mean, you would think so. And then there is a little bit of like, is it is it the fact that he taped these women without them knowing, or is it the fact that he he cheated on his fiance? Like, which of those things is the thing that he's really being haunted for? Right. Both. I guess, but like the other people don't have two different things, right? And those are really two distinct things, I think. I the, don't think they're that distinct. I think it's fair to your point that they are separate things, but they're all rolled into one experience. So it's really, you know, not only are you just cheating on your girlfriend, but you're disrespecting all these women and videotaping. So it's all really one mechanism. I, I can see that just kind of intrinsically tied together is what I'm trying to say. I don't know. If I was in that situation, if I had done something like that, I would be I would feel horribly guilty and I would feel even worse after the fact that my fiance dumped me and the only way that I would feel better would be by personally trying to apologize to these women and putting myself in that position of humility to those women and of course destroying the tapes. I'm just saying. I'm not a dude, but if I was in that position, that's what I would do. What do you think, Ray? <laughs> No head shakes. No he, head shakes. Seems like he's really thinking it through. No, no. I mean, that, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it's good. <laughs> Rachel decides to flatline next on Halloween. David tries to stop the others from giving Rachel their same fate, but she is already dead when he arrives. Rachel nearly dies for good after the power goes out and the men are unable to shock her with the defibrillator paddles. Luckily, she survives, but she too is haunted by the memory of her father committing suicide when she was young. So I think one thing that bothers me here is that we have these people coming in doing art restoration, and yet the roof is not fixed. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> leaking in there and then causes this power outage. And then, but, you know, but that's we have a to figure room, out how to revive Rachel. That's a room they didn't get to yet. Okay. See, that's why. Sure. I mean, what gets me is how there's this rave out right outside, <laughs> yeah. literally right on the other side of a window that they have like a, a sheer, you know – blind or whatever curtain. like curtain like pulled down that's going to stop people from seeing that they have lights in a dead body on it i don't know that's just but i did like all the halloween costumes they were cool yeah they were cool yeah one thing that we do we didn't really touch on was like the fact that each one kind of goes and flatlines through some sort of compet competitiveness oh yep. for you sure know? the bidding and i just feel like okay they're in med school they're old enough not to play with their lives like this like this isn't you know what you're doing. You're stopping a heart. Like, it just seemed like, but it's just not quite right that you'd be like, all right, I'll do four minutes and 20 seconds. Do not. I, I, do, I mean, no. But it, <laughs> not but, volunteering for that. But I think part of that was Nelson came back and had a vague vision. He told them a vague vision of what what had gone on, you know, on the other side. And then progressively, they want to get further out to get further beyond so they can discover what's you know on the other side i think that's what's driving them inevitably if you continue along that path you are going to continue until somebody dies right and they cannot come back and that is right just an inevitable fate of this bidding type of ceremony and i was like you're an idiot for trying to think that you can just do like a minute or minute and a half i mean they weren't even scientifically saying okay 30 seconds okay one minute okay one minute 30 i mean they had some drastic jumps in that and you're right. like whatever happened to like 30 seconds you know yeah, I mean, I thought that it was really based more in the drama and the melodrama of the movie than it was necessarily in any sort of 
scientific or medical reason. You, you know what I mean? It just amped up. It just amped up the 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 drama of the, the movie. Anti-war. So I know yeah. like Kiefer Sutherland Nelson wanted to do some sort of. He, he, I guess he thought he would be some famous doctor because he has all this data about that there is like they're proving that there is an afterlife or whatever. But there's no like recording of any data. There's the camcorder, which is a joke. Mm-hmm. I just I just felt like if you were going to have these increased jumps, then I would would I, I I don't know the science part of it would have like I would have wanted to see like a scientific justification to it yeah yeah i know what you mean just as we were talking about natalie portman and her samples yes what happened to the samples just get your documentation together you mean i didn't think nelson was the one who was after fame i mean he was after knowledge more so that was billy baldwin billy baldwin's thing was definitely being on 60 no they were they were saying oh you're going to be this you're going to be famous you're going to be that but i think he was more about you know being the first man on the moon type of idea not for the fame but for being the first I mean, that's not how I interpreted it. I probably have more like Helen. But, I mean, now that you're saying it that way, nah, I could probably go back and watch and probably parse that yeah, out. Yeah, because that was brother. Billy Baldwin's thing was being the famous one. I, he wanted to be famous. I mean, it makes sense because he's the pretty boy. Yeah. But I just felt like there was a lot of discussion about fame, and I didn't think it was necessarily exclusive of Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. Because yep. I thought the oh, only one who him. didn't want to do it was I'm Julia Roberts. Boring you over there. Yeah. Yawning into the mic. Um. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> As Julia Roberts had gone in to talk to actual patients and get kind of the near-death experience documentation. So she really wanted to do it because of her situation. Mm-hmm. But then the other I, – I honestly thought Nelson wanted to do it for the fame. Well, I, will, I, will say, I could be wrong. Well, I will say one of the things that kind of annoyed me about the movie was how Julia Roberts' character was as the only female – like the only person who had, I guess, emotional investment. Uh, yeah, investment, or 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 even like showed when she went back into the hospital to find that old woman to tell her, "Oh no, the voices were wrong." And I was like, eh, "Yeah, I don't know." I thought that one scene was interesting when Julia Roberts is going sort of toe to toe with Kevin Bacon. And I also did like that he called her out later for, like, always running away or walking away and just being, like, very non-confrontational, like, that's it, and, like, would leave. So I like that, you know, they sort of called that out. But I also liked her response to Kevin Bacon outbidding her. And instead of it being really sexist, which typically, you know, today, that would be our knee-jerk reaction, right? would be, oh, it's so sexist. She said, is this your idea of chivalry? And so I thought that was, like, Oh, you know, exactly like you don't really think of it that way at first, but he's probably trying to protect her type of thing. And not necessarily in like a patronizing way because it didn't actually come across that way. It came, it definitely came across like he was trying to be uber competitive and outbid her and da da da. And in the moment, I totally did not think it was like chivalrous and he was trying to protect her. But I like that they used that as sort of another view on what was happening. Yeah, this was the only other part of the movie I didn't like that much was this sort of quasi-love triangle between oh, yeah. Nelson and her and uh, Labratio. I mean, I did not like pretty much any of the interactions between Labratio and and Rachel Manis because he's always basically trying to get in her pants. I mean, not really get in her pants. But he, he's trying to, you know, why do you always run away from me? You know, like what – I don't know. Everything he said was like some sort of trying to get close to her, trying to make it intimate, trying to whatever – and it's like, dude, you guys are killing each other. Why don't you concentrate on that and not so much on you trying to like make this romantic connection? 
Yeah, I didn't love that Rachel was the apple of every dude's eye. I thought that was a little bit much and a little well, she's bit a, exhausting. She, she's apparently the apple of your two girls' eyes. Here. No, uh, that's is. fine. But like, again, you're in the same medical class, right? You've worked together and known each other for how long? And some of these guys felt like it was the first time they had ever talked to a girl. Yes. And this entire plot, like, even circled around, like, who was going to get Rachel? And you're just kind of like... <sighs> like that wasn't necessary you know all these movies they want to put like a love interest or a love plot in it so you you know at the end when she and kevin bacon labratio get together it's somewhat satisfying i'm not gonna lie because you're just happy that each of them sort of found someone and sort of found peace in that that's always you know a sort of a happy moment but it was just yeah it's kind of exhausting you're like everybody just wants to get in her pants so yeah and even when you know they don't even show them really start to get together they just show like oh all of a sudden they're in the bed together yeah and i don't i didn't even know if they were really in bed together or if it was like they were just laying together because they were so freaked out but then he goes to kiss her like as he's gonna leave and then you're oh okay so they must have had sex i guess let's just lay together with our underwear on yeah i know that's what i kind of that's i kind of thought it was like a like a callback (laughs) to that it was kind of being funny i don't know i do some over the clothes stuff i respect you (laughs) That was my so, favorite. The creepy, I respect you with that horrible yeah, smile. I was smile, like, I, know. I was like, that chick nailed it. I know. <laughs> so I, I one other question about speaking of, of um, in our underwear. Do, oh. do you think la la. that you can defibrillate Over with underwear. a bra? Okay. Yeah. Because I don't think you can. Thank you. Okay, yes, but it cannot have an underwire. Right, no metal. Yeah, well, and even the clips on the back, actually. Yeah. Oh. But some do have fabric clips. Yeah, well, old school. Well, what's the chance that she's going to be wearing an old... That. No. Well, even that looked like an underwire it bra. It did look like an underwire bra. I mean, I, I, She's going to get some burns. I don't know what our male I mean, female do listener it. ratio is, but you know all the chicks watching this are like, no way. Yeah, your body, <laughs> your body is definitely getting burnt yeah. with that underwire. Yeah, I mean, my thought was if you're going to do this movie and you're going to have boobs in it, she should have been topless. But she... Well, obviously she would never do that. What? This is like her second movie, right? No, she's not doing it. Even in like Pretty Woman, she wasn't all like that. And she was yeah. a hooker in that movie. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't if know. If you're going to see your boobs, I, it would have been yeah, a but, movie. But also, like, she keeps it classy. Yeah, but also, that movie is not, <laughs> that's a chick flick movie. That's not a movie that really has boobs in as much. This movie had an entire montage of boobs. It did. So you could see it. Yes, but this is Julia Roberts. And she wasn't with Baldwin. So I feel like, of course, we're keeping her classy. Yes, it wasn't, she wasn't one of the, the totally. many. Then they should have addressed it. She should have had like a t-shirt on or something. Like yeah, that. I'm going to say there were, not to say that there couldn't have been other ulterior um, wardrobe options, but <laughs> when they she, have the defibrillator though, that has to be like on skin contact. Well, then what do they right? call, what do they call those little pads they put on their, on their foreheads and stuff? They should just put sensors? those, they should just put them as little pasties and then they could have, they could have went from there. <laughs> Is that for boobies back to life? No, no, but I mean, it could have covered up so that she wasn't really showing any boobs because... You know, like instead That's... of detecting brain waves, we're gonna what detect nipple erections? No, no, I'm not. I don't know. I, no, no. He's saying <laughs> use the brain wave things as pasties. Is De- what he's saying. Detect because apparently pasties didn't exist okay. back then. Okay, so I just want, I just want, I just want to point this out. Helen said detect nipple erections. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to make sure that's out there <laughs> in the world. Because <laughs> I've never, what would you call I have it? never heard that. <laughs> what What do you call an erect nipple? Boobage. No, no, I'm, I'm sure it's called an erect nipple. I've just never heard. I don't know. 
What's the opposite of flaccid? <laughs> it's probably erect. The three men finally reveal their harrowing experiences to one another, and David decides to put his visions to a stop. Meanwhile, Joe's fiancée, Anne, comes to his apartment, and she breaks up with him after discovering his videos. Joe's visions cease after Anne leaves him. David goes to visit Winnie Hicks, now grown up, and apologizes to her. Winnie accepts his apology and thanks him. David immediately feels a weight lifted off of his shoulders. Then David finds Nelson, who accompanied David to visit Winnie, beating himself with a climbing axe. In Nelson's mind, however, Billy Mahoney is attempting for the third time to beat him to death. David stops him and they return to town. Rachel seeks comfort in the arms of David and the two spend the night together. While David and Rachel are together, Nelson takes Steckle and Joe to a graveyard. He reveals that he killed Billy Mahoney as a kid by throwing rocks at him until he fell out of a tree. Nelson storms off, leaving Joe and Steckle stranded. David leaves Rachel alone in order to rescue Joe and Steckle at the cemetery. While alone, Rachel goes to the bathroom and finds her father. He apologizes to his daughter, and her guilt over his death is lifted when she discovers that he was addicted to heroin. Then Nelson calls Rachel and tells her that he needs to flatline again in order to make amends. He apologizes for involving her and their friends in his stupid plan. All right, so this is the part of the movie when they all discover that they've, they're seeing some sort of visions and at least Kevin Bacon's character is smart enough to say, wait, maybe I should make amends and that'll make everything right. So we jumped kind of straight into the idea that it's their own personal guilt driving these manifestations. But I just want to be clear to the listeners that there's a lead up period to that, that there's a long period of time in this movie that you don't know what's going on. You know, they're sort of having these hallucinations and you think that at some point, I think Kiefer Sutherland's character says we brought our sins back to life with us which actually i thought was so cool i was like oh like the idea that maybe they brought these people back from the dead sort of with them um to potentially like corporeal you know i don't know characters in some way so i thought that was actually cool um you know then you kind of realize as they go through the list to your point ray you know we've got you know the taunting the kid in the tree the taunting the girl in the playground you know all the girls that billy baldwin slept with and then the dead dad that, um, you know, I think really, I don't know about you guys, but Rachel's experience, definitely, I was like, you know, that was not her fault. She did not do anything to him. The mother shaking her and saying, it's your fault is the only reason why she's internalized any of that. So it's got to be guilt. Yeah. But interestingly enough, hers is the one place where you could argue it is supernatural because she is granted information that she did not have previously. Potentially, you could argue she had repressed knowing that he was a heroin addict. But, you know, the way that the movie played it, she was allowed to walk into that room that she had not been in the bathroom she had not been in and engage with her father's spirit in some way. I mean, he's saying, you know, I'm sorry, forgive me. So you do wonder if there's a spiritual aspect to it to some extent. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. The way that I sort of interpreted that is even from the first glimpse that you get of her as a child going into the bathroom with his back to you, you're like, what? Is he shooting up? Like, I immediately was like, he's shooting up. So I felt in my mind that was a little bit of her as a grown-up revisiting that scene mentally and putting two and two together to understand he was shooting up, he was addicted to heroin, this isn't my fault. And then, you know, he apologized, which was really a form of self-forgiveness. I was just thinking more along what Ray was saying, is that, like, with what people describe their NDEs, 
with the real life situations that they are seeing family members on the other side that maybe this was like actually him kind of coming back to say, hey, I'm sorry. Because at one point he looks okay and then he looks more emaciated and then at the end I guess when he's hugging her he's more okay. Mm-hmm. So I also kind of thought it was more of a spiritual and not just her kind of putting the pieces together. But I could see that point. Mm. Yeah, I think it's I think it's left ambiguous, to be honest with you. I mean, obviously, there is the point that they are supposedly brain dead, and they are experiencing something. So there's some after-death aspect to it, right, that they're trying to establish in the movie. Um, but, uh, but yeah, of all of them, I felt like hers was the most spiritual, considering you see that Nelson is, like, beating himself up, essentially. There isn't, like, right. a spiritual kid doing that. And you do see that in, when, when she's in the um, operating room or the um, – autopsy room or whatever at the school like she sees her father as one of the corpses but he's obviously not the corpse so i mean she's having a vision there well they're all having visions they all have hallucinations yep you know whether they're corporeal or not i mean i think one of the key data points is you discovered to your point right is when um uh, kefir sutherland's being attacked in the jeep truck bus um (laughs) (laughs) that uh liberatio kevin bacon comes back and nobody's there so you clearly see this is a manifestation of the mind. Although it's interesting that Joel Schumacher chose to shoot outside of the truck like there's a kid running right. from side to side multiple times showing a point of view which doesn't exist. I don't think that you ever saw that kid out of Keither's view. Kiefer no, was you, looking to see the Red Hood. Well, you you never saw the kid outside of his view, but you saw like the kid was going and sneaking around the vehicle to find Kiefer Sutherland. And it's like, why would you choose to show that? It was, I guess what I would say is it's disingenuous to what was What's the reality, right? Like it was to make you think, oh, there's some kid, some spirit kid that's kind of Chucky is actually what I thought of when I saw it because it reminded yeah. me of Chucky moving. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it just adds to the spook factor because really you don't know what's happening. It's fake news, fake news, you, Schumacher. You do, for sure. Um, you know, you have no idea what's happening until, you know, really you see Labratio pull that pickaxe away from Kiefer Sutherland. So I don't know. It's interesting that you say that you thought Julia Roberts was the most spiritual because I thought hers was the least spiritual. Because even with Labratio going under... They did that literally flash backward of his life, which I thought was cool because Joe had the, you know, see your life flashing before your eyes and it was all boobs, (laughs) like starting from infancy. And Labratio's was in reverse. So he still saw your life flashing, you know, before your eyes, just in reverse. Wasn't he, his whole thing was mountains. It was all these mountains. But then it got to the mountains. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Which was interesting. Joe's was different kind of mountains. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, With a nipple erection at the end. Mm, Happy ending. (laughs) I felt a little disappointed that it was that easy for him to come to the resolution that, and I don't know if it was him saying, hey, if I apologize to Winnie that I will no longer have these issues, but I felt like it was a little too simple. But did I you? did. Yeah, I did. I felt like, well, they've already referenced he's pretty much the only one with any common sense and like That's true. good judgment. So I was laughing. Also, he's kind of the protagonist, yeah. right? He gets the girl. He solves the problem. That's true. So With that hair. Uh, we're solving problems with a bad hairdo. <laughs> but I do have to make a call out to the little actor who plays Nelson because he had a mean looking face when he was throwing those oh, rocks. Yeah, he and did. I would have been like... 
Yeah, he looked like a bully. I've oh. seen some kids like that. I was like, that's a perfect depiction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they probably drove by and saw him picking on some kid in school. <laughs> at school playground was like, you, you, kid, blondie, come just over here. Just act like yourself. Yeah, yeah just K- here. Kicking that cat right right this way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I thought all of that was really well done. I liked that he went to Winnie, and I also liked the Winnie interaction. That she was kind of like, I don't even remember what you're talking about. And you're like, oh, like, at first I was like, that's even better. Because that totally compounds the fact that it's completely his complex and in his psyche. And then you're like, maybe she really legitimately does not remember, which would be really interesting. And then, you know, sort of after he's pushing, 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 um, which was also like kind of like over the top. But I, I appreciate that he just really wanted to make himself feel better. And then again, he comes under this self-realization, being self-aware that this isn't just about him. It's about her. And he doesn't want to make her feel any worse. Right. So again, like, I'm sorry for bringing it up. And I'm sorry. And I don't want to upset you any further. You know, I'm sorry. I'll just go type of thing. Yeah. I thought the very ending where he double checks with her to make sure it's okay. Mm-hmm. I thought that was seemed sincere. There was right. a sincerity in that, both the way Kevin Bacon played it, and obviously the script writing writing that um, I think sealed that whole scene for me. Yeah, I agree, and I really liked the fact that they let Winnie not be destroyed by that. Mm-hmm. Like that she was a person with a family, and then she seemed to be doing really well with herself. And that I don't know, just having gone through it, and then becoming the horticulturist that she was it just felt nice that that was like a growing and and positive type of thing that she went to the positive you're so right because you almost expected her to be a drug addict or dead somewhere Mm -hmm. and you're like oh my god this is gonna be really traumatic and then yeah she's incredibly successful has this beautiful house beautiful family so that was cool yeah and i think it's some in some ways speaks to the idea that it wasn't a big thing right him picking on her as a little kid it was but it also wasn't in the sense that you know it didn't destroy her life you know right um so it could have been a turning point i mean we don't have enough details but no i know but i I guess what i'm trying to say is though that that the guilt he feels matters right even though it was a little thing a long time ago it was it's important and it was important for him to to go and to apologize to her i think i don't know about you guys but i'm walking i'm watching this thinking Oh my God, like, are there kids back in the day that I made fun of that I should be feeling bad for that if I die, like, I'm going to be, you know, going through this sort of self-realization? I don't know. Did you guys have any sort of, like, you know, memories flashing to mind that you're like, I should feel bad for that? Maybe, like, call somebody else and apologize? I was not popular, so I think I'm safe. Yeah, I was like... <laughs> yeah, I was more the Winnie Hicks than yeah, I was yeah, the, I think, yeah. the Liberatia. I mean, there was this one time, I still don't understand why, I think I was in like fifth grade, and this girl slapped me full in the face. I have no idea why she slapped me. <laughs> well, clearly you did something wrong. No, I mean, I know exactly where we were, too. We were in like, it was like a like study hall, but it was more like <laughs> recess. But they had a Nintendo there, and the kids were playing Nintendo, and I knew it because that was the big thing. I mean, it was video games you in had school. That in it was like, school? well, it was, it was like this treat. I don't know why, but it was like our, our class, I guess. Uh, and yeah, I just remember turning around and, and she just like hauled off and hit me. And I later on, like in high school and stuff, like we were friendly. It wasn't like we weren't friends, maybe best you friends. Thought but, to say, hey, what was that about? No, I just maybe she kind of went said with something. it. I mean, maybe she did. Maybe I didn't realize that I was. It was a microaggression or something maybe. like that. And she just. But anyway, yeah. So if she came up to you today and said, hey, I'm really sorry, I just like full out bitch slapped you, would you be, like, I mean, that's I, fine? Or? I mean, I haven't carried that with me, like with any <laughs> sense of whatever, but, but I'd be like, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, no, no problem. 
I was more like, as we were going through this, concerned about, because they always say, you know, the kids that are being bullied are the bullies too. And I think there are so many, you know, examples where you bullied somebody that you're not even aware that you're doing it. So I was kind of like, if this was a legitimate, like your sins coming back to haunt you, it would really be more of those situations where you didn't even realize you were doing anything wrong because you don't, you didn't have the opportunity to self-forgive, you know, because you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't. Yeah, but if you don't have the guilt, then I don't know if it's necessarily a sin. Um, I would say you would still be a sin because it's how you're in, you know, right, it, what you're inflicting on that person. But in Joel Schumacher's world, in this example, it's about their self-guilt. So it wouldn't manifest right, here. It's right. about things that you're aware of, but like in actual, the, the idea of judgment day, if you will, right, is about sort of, uh, you know reconciling your sins and i think that there is just you know as you sort of do those flashbacks to childhood you kind of think i don't know like are there people like i intentionally hurt or who knows i believe that's called humanity i think people just you know you unintentionally hurt people and and people think you say things you didn't mean and i mean there's all kind of miscommunications and things like that i think in life so yeah and that you just hope that the the good that you do offsets the crap that you you pull just be nice people yeah I guess, yeah. So um, one thing I did like about Rachel's uh, story is I, I appreciate the fact that her father was a Vietnam vet. And I don't know. We've been doing some reviews of older uh, movies. And I just – I feel like Vietnam, maybe it's also because of Donald Trump and the Watergate thing and all that kind of parallelism right now. But I feel like Vietnam is like in my mind a little more than it ever was. So seeing him, you know, come back, obviously from Vietnam – and and be a heroin addict. I, I don't know. That was, I that that meant something more to me this time than it did when I had previously watched it. He he didn't really make much of an impact on me the first time for times I watched it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think that I was a lot less aware of heroin the first time I saw this as well. Now with the opioid epidemic that we are in, true, that was a lot more front of mind as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was trying to like think back, like, like even in high school, I know we talked a little bit about heroin, but it wasn't as big as it is right now. But he did feel really bad about like what happened, like, and of course I've I was never in the military or anything, but what happened that caused him to to go to that? And it just felt really sad that you have this young daughter who then you're trying the mom's trying to keep her from seeing what's dad's doing to himself, I guess, by saying don't go into that room. But it just it just seemed really sad that and then and then with like what the healthcare is with the military veterans today yeah it just kind of you know you didn't have it then and then today it still kind of sucks yeah and don't get me started on like the other bad mom tangent for sure i mean how bad that mom was just really again another bad mom but why were the toys all over the stairs like bad mom pick them up it's all a mess or tell the kid to pick them up well i mean in in her defense of course i mean she has a husband who came back from war and is you know, up. is messed up and yeah. she's probably trying to deal with that. And she's been raising this kid by herself probably. And so, I mean, there's a whole lot there. I mean, obviously her yelling at her daughter saying it's your fault. It was the wrong thing to do, but in the moment. You think? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in the moment, I, I think it's understandable to some extent. I don't know about that. I mean, I'll forgive the toys on the stairs for sure. Just to raise point of sort of the insanity of everything that's going on. Maybe they're all pretty much at wit's end and then therapeutically she's ironing in the corner. I don't know that's fine but 
I mean, you don't grab your daughter and shout, it's your fault, he's shooting up. But that was before he even blew his brains out. Yeah. She yelled, it's your fault. Well, I, I don't I don't necessarily take it that she was saying it's your fault that he's on drugs or it's your fault that he killed himself because obviously she said it before that. But she's saying it's your fault that he's upset now, that he stormed out. You know what I mean? Because like, he fell down the steps fault. on that toy. So I thought she was saying it's your fault that... You left all this crap there, and that's why you fell down. Yeah, the whole that whole thing. Like I wasn't didn't think she was blaming her for the him killing himself. Although that's obviously how Julia yeah, Roberts' yeah. character took it. I, I just felt like at some point with everything that's going on, and I know it's a mess, and I know his dad's going through all this crap. But like, and 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 parents, we all do things to our kids that we're just like, oh crap, I shouldn't have done that. I wish I could take it back. Is this going to affect them twenty years down the line? But like at some point, the mom could have gone back and fixed it, you know, and said, hey. Like, Sorry, I did that. Or yeah, well, once again, we don't know what happens, yeah. right? I mean, the only person we actually, I think, know what happens after um, the issue is is uh, is Nelson. I mean, he says like, "I thought I paid for this. I was taken away from my family." You know, so you know what happened to him. I mean, you don't know the mother might have, you know, completely alienated Julia Roberts' That's character true. for the rest of the time they were growing up. I mean, who knows what happened? All right, three men race to Nelson, who has been dead for an estimated nine minutes already. Rachel soon finds them, and the four friends work feverishly to save Nelson. In the afterlife, Nelson is experiencing himself as a young boy being stoned by Billy Mahoney from the tree. Nelson dies in the afterlife from the fall, and his friends cannot revive him. When they are about to give up, Mahoney forgives Nelson, and David gives Nelson one last shock. This brings him back. Nelson tells them, today wasn't a good day to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was a that, that was a little on the nose and eh, was not my favorite, but um but I like the idea. I mean, again, this whole idea of self-awareness that right the other characters showed a little bit more. I mean, maybe not Joe. He just like again, apparently his guilt disappeared, which I also think is bullshit, but that's fine. But, you know, again that uh Kiefer Sutherland Nelson wants to go like he's like I'm ready to die. I need to face Billy and make amends somehow. Like Whatever that means, clearly I can't go on living like this. So whatever. He's at his wit's end. It's time to go. So, uh, you know, I think plot-wise that made sense. And then I thought it was interesting too, you know, just the way, again, I thought it was a good ending the way that they're ramping up towards this whole very, you know, anxiety-filled, you know, suspense-filled motion where he's dead. He can't be revived. He's being taunted now Billy, by M- Billy Mahoney. He's now the one in the tree. The roles are reversed. They can't revive him. They can't revive him because this whole scene has to play out type of thing. And then Billy Mahoney finally gets him. You know, he falls out of the tree and he, like, quote-unquote, dies. And you're kind of like, is this it? Like, like maybe he really is. And at this point, they can't revive him, right? At this point, he's, like, way past dead and they can't get him back. And they're going, that's it. He's fallen out. And basically, you could see, you know, even in the undead world, that he would be going, I got what was coming to me. Like, he got me. Now I'm dead. I died the same way. And that's it type of thing. Right. And then that's when Billy comes back and forgives him. He forgives himself type of thing. And then he chooses to come back to life. Yeah. I, I think he actually comes back with the shock. Right. I think he, they shock him and he wakes up in the in the afterlife. And that's when Billy comes up to him with the dog and kind of sm- gives him that smile. Still creepy smile. Super creepy, creepy smile. Super creepy. <laughs> and, and then turns around and walks away. And what I liked about that was he Nelson stands up. And for a moment, he's looking at the light over over the hill, and you can tell he's contemplating whether or not he wants to go figure out what that is or not. And then he hears the pe- the, the doctors, 
his friends, and he turns around and starts running back through the field to return to the living, um, which I think is, I appreciated that that uh, that scene. Yeah, I mean, that worked for me because it was a different way of showing the same old scene where you're going into the light and then you hear the people calling you and you're like, no, come back from the light. And then people come back to the world of the living. So without being too like on the nose and too gimmicky that way, you know, this was exactly the same mechanism that, I don't know, they pulled it off, I thought. Yeah. All right, so I have one more question for everybody. Let's talk about near-death experiences. Has have any of us had near-death experiences or know people that have had near-death experiences? Nope. Not a... Yeah, me either. No, you have... Wow. <laughs> Helen, you do have some information about near-death experiences, though, you wanted to, yeah, to so share, right? Yeah, so I couldn't find fun facts about the movie, so I decided to look up near-death experiences instead. So there is a huge study that was based off of this, I guess, this movie kind of initiated it, where they're studying whether or not your floating over your body type thing is actually um, like a figment of your imagination or if it's actually something that occurs that your mind separates from your body after death. So when they have these cardiac arrests, they can happen anywhere from a few seconds to actually an hour, which is different from what this film projects because you're like, oh, four minutes is a lot, which four minutes, yes, I, I would not want to be dead for four minutes. But um, so they decided to place pictures in rooms where people commonly had cardiac arrests or have, I guess this is an ongoing study, in, um, in hospitals. So like if you're floating over your body, you would then be able to see these pictures, but they aren't visible to the person on the table. Gotcha. So in, if you were able to identify, because some people, apparently 10 to 20% of people who have near or cardiac arrests and come back have these near-death experiences. That you, if you can identify the picture, then they're saying that this is actually reality and not just something that's a figment of your imagination. Mm-hmm. But these 10 to 20% of people have extremely cognitive responses to what's going on. So your brain function, even though it's saying it's flatlined mm-hmm. or you're not having a response with brain function because your flatline, I guess, is really your heart, they're able to have reasoning and they can hear the conversations that the doctors are having. And it's just bizarre. So they're trying to explain it. So is it, do they have any results yet? No, it's apparently going on in like 1,500 – I think it's 1,500 patients, but it's in like 25 facilities between Canada, U.S., and Europe. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that's – it has to be like one of the only definitive ways to see whether or not there's actually something going on or not. Because right. I've read, I've read um, stories where, you know, they'll describe the room and they'll describe things outside – like the window, like, oh, there was a pair, I think one was like a pair of shoes hanging from a clothesline or something like that. But that's not to say that they didn't see that. Right, going into it. Going into it or whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah, they were saying that a lot of these people will have, like you said, not something within their eyesight, but they're able to explain it. So one person, um, I guess, saw their family in the cafeteria while they were coding. So the family didn't know they were coding, but they could recite what their family conversation was. So how do you explain that? Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah, Um, weird. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other, there was another doctor who said that he's been collecting things, I guess, for 20 years now from different countries. And everyone has a very positive experience, which also kind of negates what this movie is. Like they go into this light, everything's really positive. They get the option of returning. They will usually say, no, they don't want to return, which is kind of opposite what you would think. But then the parent or whoever they see on the other side, the family member will just send them back anyway. Interesting. I, I had read that um, alongside of 
studies like this, they have replicated the tunnel effect um, by manipulating some part of the brain, and I don't have the exact information on hand. Um, but so they think that they found the place in the brain that actually produces that. Oh, really? That tunneling. If yeah. I, so like I know they said something about there's electrical fields that are in your visual cortex that seems to be like stimulated more so than what it normally would be. So I don't mm-hmm. know if it's the visual cortex. Yeah, I don't know. And they said that there's rapid eye movement. So that could be the explanation as to why you're seeing something. But then there's still some things that are not explained. Yep. Yeah. I like that Labratio made the reference to like, isn't it just hormones? And isn't it just these, yeah, the electrodes firing? So I like that they gave that a quick call out in the movie as well. Yep. I appreciate that. Yeah. The only other, and I realized actually in hindsight, the only other somewhat uh, near-to-death experience I had was when I went into allergic anaphylactic shock and then I passed out and then I came back from that before um, the EMTs had arrived and I had somebody hovering over me basically like interrogating me about what had happened in the situation and all I can remember is thinking, oh God, please just take me now and I immediately passed back out again. So that was helpful. (laughs) (laughs) So I think you do have some willingness control over the situation. So you saying that reminded me of not a near-death experience, but I experienced similar experience. I don't know if I want to tell the story or not, though, but I will. Okay. And I'll I like cu- it. And I'll cut it if it's, Do it. it's, it's too much. <laughs> you can delete it later. Yeah. So uh, when I was younger, much younger, um, I was with my girlfriend at the time, and uh, we were in the shower, and we were having sex, basically. And... <laughs> Apparently, between the heat in the shower and my breathing or non-breathing, <laughs> um, I basically hyperventilated, right? And I got real lightheaded, and I was like, I, I was like, I gotta, I was like, I gotta get out of here. So I like got out of the shower, and I must have taken two steps, and then I fainted. I was out, and I fell, and I hit the, I hit the, the floor. But like during the time i was passed out or when i was waking back up like i had some weird vision dream things like i remember not remembering where i was and thinking i was someplace else and then coming to and being like what the hell's going on uh and then you know i was like naked laying on the floor like wet and i'm like Whoa, what um so anyway yeah it wasn't near death experience but it was a near something experience i guess yeah mine was totally black it was total blackness and like one minute, you know, I was like in the bathroom, passed out. And then the next minute you're kind of like waking up on the kitchen floor, looking up, but like, but you know, it's like sleeping, like it's a nice blackness. So don't get freaked out. Yeah. Mine wasn't. It was, it was weird. Yeah. I passed out once. Not, I don't know why. And it was never figured out why, but I, when I woke up, it was like, my room was like a mile long. It was like a very weird disorienting type thing. Mm. I've had that post-surgery. Oh, where, yeah? you, where you wake up and like, I do that, like when they say bright eyed baby type of thing, like that's what I am. Like my eyes get super big and like you can't physically control it. Like you don't know what's happening. And then to your point, it's like your visual cortex is just like uber stimulated. And you're like, what's happening? Where am I? What's so, maybe it was just something like that. Like yeah. a really like visual intake. That's yeah. I just assumed it was some sort of oxygen thing for like, yeah. I just couldn't wrap my head around where things were actually located because my room at the time was not a mile long. <laughs> <laughs> I had a boss in the military who he had broken his kneecap 
uh, like a, years before, you know, I knew him. And apparently what happened was he didn't realize he had broken it. And it Ew. healed, but it healed in a way that um, apparently the nerve, some nerve in there got like connected into the bone. Oh, God. Oh and God. he would pass out randomly throughout like a couple years. And he came to realize that it was when his kneecap was hit. Like you could tap his kneecap oh and he would God. pass out. And mm. so they had to re-break his kneecap. Because, yeah. But that's such a fun party trick. Why yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you knew that, you could get him in a fight. You'd be like, wow, I hit him in a kneecap. Bam, he's done. Yeah. Hey, yeah. kids, go. Here's something fun. Go hit Uncle Joe in the kneecap. Yeah. <laughs> See what happens. Yeah. So, anyway, another weird passing out thing. Not as cool as near death experiences, but still. Oh, no, yeah. All right. So, we're going to do our kill, chill, and thrill section. So, I always love to start with Ray. Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's see. Who would I kill? Okay. I would kill the medical doctor, that teacher. I disliked her in every scene she was in. She was kind of a bitch. Yeah. She, I mean, she was. So I would kill her. Okay. Uh, who would I chill? I'd chill with Kevin Bacon. That's kind of a cop out because he's kind of the coolest guy in, in, the, in the movie. But hey, he's like a, like a rappeller, a rock climber, whatever. Like he'd be cool to chill with, right? Like Fonzie. Yeah, like kind of like Fonz, like the Fonz. Uh, and then who would I thrill? Anybody but Julia Roberts. Oh, you're such an asshole. Boom. <laughs> All right, Anne. Okay. You're up. Well, I would kill Nelson because he annoyed the shit out of me. That that Weasley little, ah, I know he drove the whole plot, but, you know, nevertheless, he was really obnoxious. I would chill with Winnie. Let's go talk about some flowers, man. That was awesome. Let's learn about orchids. And I would thrill with a combo of Julia and Billy Baldwin together. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I'm you, with you on that one. Do you one. know how many diseases Billy Baldwin has, both fictionally as that character and probably in real life? This is a hypothetical. Right. Oh, okay. All right. Cool, cool, and, cool. I mean, out of everybody, I think he was the most attractive. Like, mm -hmm. I, I feel like Kiefer Sutherland has grown in attractiveness over the years, but there was some weird thing going on with his ears in this one. Yeah, definitely in the younger movies, he has, like, these really bad teeth which yeah. i think he got adjusted and then to your point like the ears he grew into exactly like you're saying like a boxier face like a much yeah. sexier looking man but yeah here nope yeah so i i would kill oliver platt i'm sorry yeah. you weren't funny you didn't bring anything to the table man, you gotta, like man you gotta fat shame the guy and then you're gonna kill him no oh. i didn't fat shame him he was just i don't know i thought he was supposed to be funny and he definitely was not gotcha i have a hard time with who i would chill with but i really like Anne's winnie and of course, Julia Roberts and Baldwin. Baldwin was my name. Was my name, and then I, I didn't think to add Julia. Let's do a combo, top. yeah, right? All four yeah. of us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we've reviewed the movie, it's time to rate it. Only the best movies make it to the top of the hill, and to be the best, they have to perform in three categories. Now, the first is technical composition, which represents how well the movie's made, including the script, directing, cinematography, acting, and effects. Second is impact which represents how well the movie accomplished its emotional intent. Was it scary or funny? Did it make you question reality or mankind? And third, enjoyment, which is pretty simple. Just how much did you enjoy watching the movie? Would you watch it again? Do you never want to watch it again? Now, because we've kind of run over in, in the rest of our recording here, we're going to try to keep this pretty short. So let's um, go through quickly and give our three scores. And do you want to give yours? All right, I'll be really quick. Uh, technical, you guys know I always focus on um, effects and cinematography, of which this movie had a lot. So don't be a hater. I gave it a 10. 
for impact, like last time, you know, it, it left more of an impact this time. Um, but, I, you know, again, overall, it didn't like really pop. So I actually just gave it a five. And for enjoyment overall, I did enjoy this because although the impact was low, the technical and the cinematography was high. And again, like I said, I like Joel Schumacher. I just thought it was kind of cool. For So for enjoyment, I gave it a seven. Okay, Helen. So for technical, I gave it a five because there was just a couple of things in there that I just didn't get why he did. And maybe if I understood why he picked some of his, <laughs> his I don't know, theatrical stuff, I maybe would have given it a higher rating. For Impact, I gave it a six because, I mean, I didn't think it was that scary. I didn't, I, I didn't really, I don't know. It was all right. And for enjoyment, I gave it a five. I don't know if I'd have to watch this again. It was okay. All right. Well, I gave it a seven for technical composition. I thought it was well made. It was very atmospheric. Uh, there were a couple missteps, but overall, I enjoyed it. The uh, impact, I gave it a four. I didn't think, obviously, not that scary. Uh, it did do a little bit to draw me in in places, but you have Billy Baldwin's character's sort of uh, issue with both sleeping with the women and cheating on his on his fiance, and it, that's never really resolved. So I, I, it just wasn't as impactful as I thought it could have been. And but enjoyment, I actually really enjoyed watching this movie this time. I'm going to give it an eight. I, I could go back and watch it again, and I don't think I ever would have thought I'd say that about a Joel Schumacher movie. So there you go. <laughs> All right. So the tallies are in. So across the board, I not surprisingly rated this movie the highest at a seven point three three. Uh, looks like Ray, you are next in line with a 6.33 and Helen, unfortunately you enjoy this the least at a 5.33, which makes averaging these three scores very easy at a 6.33. All right. Well, that does not put it at the top of the hill. Obviously it is slightly better than Halloween 1978, uh, but not as good as Scream. So I think that's where it falls in the, the pantheon of our of our movies so far. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think I'm dragging this one up a little bit. And <laughs> I think if we went back and did, you know, uh, a Halloween 1970s, um, that would probably get bumped too. And it was good. I mean, for me, I'd watch this again. I'd watch that again. All right. Well, if you enjoyed this podcast, help us grow our audience, rate and review us on iTunes, and please share us with your friends and family on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms. Give us a shout out to tell us how we're doing or suggest movies to review. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at host.hth at gmail.com. I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Hilltop Horror Movie Reviews. I'm your host, Ray Richards, and on behalf of my co-hosts, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. 